0: Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just 897 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hi everyone, and welcome to Bloomberg Intelligence Talking Transports Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Klasgow, Senior Freight Transportation Logistics Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research arm. We're delighted to have Chairman Martin Oberman of the Surface Transportation Board as our guest on the podcast today. He was designated chairman of the SDB by President Biden in January 2021 and has been on the board since January 2019. Chairman Oberman served on the Chicago City Council as an alderman of the city's 43rd Ward from 1975 to 1987. He earned a reputation as a reform leader committed to promoting transparency in key governing processes while also working to reduce government corruption and Waste. Since 1975, he has also maintained a successful practice in Chicago as both a trial and appellate lawyer. His unique combination of litigation experience, elected public service, and exposure to significant complexities of the rail infrastructure finance and operations has informed his work as a member of the SDB. He graduated from Yale University in the University of Wisconsin Law School cum laude and served as a note editor of the Wisconsin Law Review. So are are you more of a a Badger fan or a Bulldog fan? Mm. Last night I was a a, uh, Wolverine fan. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you, Chairman Oberman, for joining us today on the podcast. It's great to have you. Good to be here. So, you know, a lot of our listeners, they might not be very familiar with uh, the Surface Transportation Board or the STB. Can, can you do talk about what the mission of the STB is and what its priorities are?
1: Of course, uh, to put it in a little bit of perspective, I suspect most listeners <coughs> were familiar with the Interstate Commerce Commission, the old ICC, which had jurisdiction not only over freight, but all sorts of uh, transportation. Uh, in 1995, the Congress abolished the ICC and replaced it with the surface transportation board and assigned all of the remaining jurisdiction of the ICC to our board. So historically we've actually been in existence since the 18 eighties. We were the first administrative agency created. And our current mission is the economic regulation of the freight rail industry. We have a little bit to do and very little with, uh, bus company acquisitions, moving company, uh, moving van kinds of issues, but they take up, you know, less than a half a percent of our time. Uh, really our, our job is the um, economic regulation of the freight rail industry and, uh, the oversight of the relationship between Amtrak's operations and the freight rail railroads on which Amtrak operates. So that. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that's the broad description.
0: Oh, all right. And and what, what's the makeup of the board? How many members are there? Um, are they all like, uh, how how do you get it to be on the board? Because, you know, I might be looking for a job in a couple of years.
1: Yeah, be, be my guest. There's going to be an opening soon. The uh, <laughs> uh, There are five members of the board. We are an independent agency, meaning like the Federal Communications Commission, the Security and Exchange Commission. So we're not technically accountable to any cabinet secretaries uh, or any executive departments. Uh, Our members are appointed by the president and must be confirmed by the Senate. And uh, like most regulatory agencies in Washington, no more than a majority can be from the same party. So currently there are three Democrats and two Republicans. And the, the president designates one of the members to be chairman, who is also has a uh, one uh, vote, the same as anybody else does on the board, but also serves as the CEO of the agency. So that's what
0: I do. Super. And, you know, what are the regulatory priorities for the STB this year?
1: Oh, my gosh. There uh, There are myriad ways to describe that. First of all, we have to keep in mind that much of our work depends on cases that are brought to us. So we uh, are the sole authority regulating railroad company acquisitions, mergers, acquisitions of, of existing railroads, all must uh, all require our uh, review and approval. Uh, so those cases come in, we have. Uh, one significant one pending now, and we have a couple of uh, of, of others on the agenda. Uh, I can't predict what more of those matters may come in, but they can be very time consuming. Uh, we also hear challenges by uh, railroad customers to the rates they're being charged. And there's a very elaborate and detailed statutory scheme uh, setting forth the criteria by which we review challenges to freight rates. Uh, but that is a very important function that we serve uh, as a as a check on a uh, potential check on rates that railroads charge their customers. Uh, we, we also is, that, generally... is that is that
0: is is that the most uh, common type of uh, case that, that that the STBCs are rate cases?
1: Yeah. I- interestingly enough, it's the most significant part, I think, of our jurisdiction. We rarely get rate cases. <clears throat> we stand there as a backstop, so uh, uh, I think in most cases, railroads and shippers reach agreement on rates because they know they're subject to review by us, and that's my inference. Uh, rate cases are extraordinarily complicated and expensive and time-consuming, right. and they very infrequently get brought. Uh, so in terms of number of cases, it's very uncommon in terms of the importance of our Regulatory position. I think it's perhaps the most important uh, role that we serve. We also uh, consider matters dealing with competition or lack of competition in the freight rail industry. Uh, And we we have a general rulemaking authority from the Congress, and so we issue regulations from time to time, governing how the freight industry operates and its relationships with its uh, with, with, with its customers. Uh, one of the things that I have initiated since becoming chairman is more, uh, active ongoing oversight, often through public hearings of the conditions of freight rail service in the country. There's been a, uh, over the last few years, a real decline, uh, in freight rail service, which caused us to have some very significant hearings over the last year or so things have significantly improved since those hearings, although they still have a long way to go in, in my view. So that's that's an over, overview. I think we can get into more specifics if you want.
0: Sure. But, so what what would be the most common kind of case that's brought before the SDB if it's not the rate case? And obviously you guys aren't dealing with the uh, um, you know, there are some mergers, but I'm assuming there's not a lot of them. Is there something that uh, kind of takes up most of the board's time?
1: You know, it'd be hard to
0: pinpoint it out because it's
1: varied so much over at least the three years that I've been chairman. The the significant major merger, the first one in the last 25 years that was approved uh, a year and a half ago, was, oh, no, this year. I, I'm sorry, the, I've lost track of the years earlier in 2023, right. Uh, with the merger between Canadian Pacific and Kansas city Southern. And that uh, dominated a great deal of time of the board staff and the board members. So one case, you know, was a significant uh, uh, use of, of the board's resources. Uh, the, um, a great deal of routine, smaller matters uh, that do in terms of sheer numbers, are probably the most common cases. You you can't uh, railroad or anybody who owns the railroad track that is part of the interstate network cannot abandon or discontinue use of those tracks without our approval. And uh, oftentimes those discontinuance requests will involve the uh, a request to utilize the railroad right of way for a uh, recreational trail. And by sheer numbers, those are probably the most common that, that come in. Uh, right. Most of them are routine, occasionally ones get very complicated. Uh, construction of new rail is under our jurisdiction, requires our approval. You know, detailed environmental and historic uh, reviews before we could grant permission. Uh, one case that uh, occupied a great deal of our time still pending in the courts, Uh, was the proposal to build a new 88 mile long railroad through some wilderness area in Utah to serve some potential oil fields. Uh, So we get cases of of, of that nature, but there's such a variety, Lee, it'd be hard to say there's any one kind that dominates our work.
0: Right. You know, you alluded to that rail services improved uh, and that improvement has been since the onset of the pandemic when um rails just did a a bad job at furloughing folks and uh people didn't want to come back to work so they were kind of caught flat-footed what do you think some of the lessons from the stb's point of view are from the service issues that we went through during the pandemic up until now
1: well i can say what lessons the stb has learned and i can only hope that the large railroads have earned this learned the same lessons i think the I'll reserve judgment on that as time unfolds. We have to put it in in context prior to the pandemic in the uh, seven, eight years, just prior to the pandemic, the the large railroads, there were seven prior to the merger. Now there are six. They're called class ones because of their size. And people are definitely familiar with uh, Union Pacific, Burlington Northern, CSX and uh, the Norfolk Southern in the the US, those railroads together uh, decreased their workforce by about 30%, uh, really in a a really severe cost-cutting measure, which had already uh, compromised service. Uh, You you just can't provide good on-time rail service with too few crew uh, and too few mechanics to keep locomotives running and all the other things that railroads need. And when the pandemic hit in the spring of 2020, these railroads decreased their workforce by another significant number, thousands more were furloughed. And as you say that many of them did not come back and they did not come back to a workforce, which was already too low. And this led to, uh, during 2021. Uh, and early 2022, a real service crisis in this country of moving freight. Uh, it was part of the whole supply chain problem, uh, combined with the problem at the ports uh, that you know got so much attention in the media. Uh, subsequent to the hearings that we held in the spring of 2022, uh, we initiated uh, some detailed uh, accountability reporting requirements. From the railroads to us, which are public, uh, about their progress in rehiring and trying to staff up. And the railroads have added about 9,000 people across the board since the spring of 2022. They still have 15,000 fewer workers than they had just before the pandemic. Right now, as we speak, we're at a relatively low ebb in the volume of carloads that are on the freight network. So it's just like a, a freeway and non-rush hour times, traffic moves pretty well. And that is what's happening right now in the freight rail network. As the, as the industrial part of the economy recovers and everybody says it will, nobody knows exactly when, but certainly during the course of this year, the demand for freight rail is likely to increase. Uh, there's a significant question in my mind as to whether the railroads will have enough staff to handle a return to a more normal levels on the network. So that needs to be watched very carefully. The rail, many of the CEOs and there are several new CEOs among the class one railroads have said that their railroads have learned their lesson that they're not uh, going to keep reducing their workforce and that they're gearing up to hire as needed. Uh, it remains to be seen because there's still a great deal of pressure from wall street to keep costs as low as possible to uh, allow for uh, as large as stock buybacks and dividends as possible and keep the stock prices up. That's a dominant force among the class one railroads and that's still there.
0: Right. And so is your concern that they haven't um, hired enough? Um, but it's- service is okay right now, just because, as you mentioned, uh, volumes are not, you know, very high? Uh, uh,
1: yes, that's, that's my concern. They all say they're on the right path and well, it just remains to be seen. Uh, so thing, things are definitely better. But I think that, you know, these large railroads for many of their customers are monopolies or at best duopolies. Which is why the regulatory agency exists. There's not really a free market for rail freight rail service in this country, and monopolies will generally, if unrestrained, will behave the way monopolists do. They'll lower output and raise
0: prices. And, and how does how does the STB make uh, these Class One railroads accountable?
1: You know, it's a it's a quite a challenge because. During the deregulatory move in the 1970s and 80s, the Congress significantly cut back on the authority of the ICC and therefore the authority of the STB. And uh, uh, one of the ways, one of the few tools we have, which I think has brought about some uh, benefits has been to hold railroads publicly accountable. Uh, People in the industry tell me that the board's hearings in which we required the railroads to come in and answer for these, uh, uh, worker cuts and the levels of their service, and then requiring them to provide us with targets for improvement have resulted in improvement. I I don't know that we could take all the credit, but certainly we're, we're part of the picture. Um, as I said, we stand there ready to hear complaints about rates. If rates are being charged at unreasonable levels, Uh, we have rules pending, which I hope will have the impact of increasing competitive options for shippers. And the more competition we can build into the system, the less overt regulation is necessary by us. And, and the market can improve service uh, and and rates. So we we have some limited uh, tools, uh, and uh, you know we haven't historically the board has not used all the tools available we're starting to to be a little more active in that area but it is a slow and should be a slow and deliberate process
0: right and and so what would you like to see the railroads do besides maybe hiring more people to improve service or maybe make them more accountable like do you think they should have certain standards that they need to meet
1: well, setting precise standards is a challenge because there's such a variation in the kinds of service that freight rail provides. Different commodities need different kinds of service. So it is a challenge to set service standards. I would like to see the railroads not only hire more labor, but invest more in capital. I mean, railroads are already a very capital-heavy industry because simply maintaining the system does require a uh, billions of dollars a year to replace ties and rails and switches. Uh, It's remarkable the the tonnage that goes over this infrastructure that just wears out. It has to be regularly replaced, but the railroads have spent very small proportion of their earnings and their whole capital programs on expanding their networks and providing service now where it's not provided. That is what I really think is needed to benefit the economy, and perhaps even more importantly, the climate. Railroads are by far the most climate-friendly way to move freight, and the more freight we can get off the highways and onto the rails, uh, will make a significant contribution to reducing the carbon output you know, it, of our of our country.
0: Right. So- and, and- and that expansion, is that expansion, are you talking about double-track, triple-tracking uh, routes? Or are you talking about them going into areas that they might not have any, uh, their network get, doesn't touch yet?
1: Well, challenging the railroads to build new right-of-ways in areas where they're not currently serving is a pretty big assignment. Uh, acquiring land and building a new rail right-of-way is an, an enormous, uh, enormously cost, uh, costly venture. But triple tracking, double tracking, improving the operations in yards is necessary if, because there's a great amount of potential freight that used to be moved on rail that has moved over to a truck, which can be won back. The railroads all talk about, they have this phrase they've been using for several years now called pivoting to growth. Not everybody's actually doing it, even though they're talking about it. Um, uh, but all the railroads say in order to win freight back from trucks to rail, they have to provide dependable and reliable service. Uh, uh, if you're operating a major industry, which relies on moving he- heavy amounts of freight around to make your products, you can't operate a plant. If you don't know when your raw materials are going to get there or when your finished product is going to go out to your customers. In any reliable way trucks historically have been much more dependable about getting there when they say they're going to get there uh, the railroads in order to provide that kind of long-term reliability and dependability need to have more infrastructure uh, uh, they need double tracking they need more sightings they need improvements in their yards uh, what we hear from shippers most often are plates are, is that it's not so much that the railroads aren't fast enough. It's just that they're not reliable enough. Um, and so I don't think you can do that without both sufficient labor and sufficient infrastructure.
0: Gotcha. You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, railroads and their their capital expenditures and how much they spend. Uh, For those listening, you know, a railroad will spend anywhere between 15 and 20 percent of their revenues on CapEx and anywhere between 75 and 80 percent of that is just maintenance to maintain the right away. And and the other 20, 25 percent are for for growth uh, projects. And that can be anything from new equipment to technology uh, to building out, uh, you know, Uh, uh, double tracking or triple tracking if if they have those kind of um, projects in place. Um, So they do spend a lot of their own.
1: I'm not sure that that 25% figure of their overall capital and growth is, is the right number. The we collect a great deal of financial data, but we don't have a breakdown between so-called expansion capital and maintenance capital. Right. But the numbers I have seen, is that the percentage on expansion capital are far lower than 25%. Uh, I don't know what the number is, but whatever it is, it's too low.
0: There's been something in the uh, transportation press uh, for quite some time. It's something called reciprocal switching. Can you talk to our listeners about what reciprocal switching is and why the STB is has an interest in it?
1: I, I could only give you a very limited discussion of that because sure. we have a a proposed rule pending before us now, so I can't discuss the merits or the, sub, you know, the substantive arguments about the proposed rule. Okay. But the concept is this, that there are many, many businesses in this country who use freight rail who are served by only one railroad. Uh, and therefore, they're subject to the kind of monopoly pressures that monopolies can exercise over, uh, over their customers. There are many places where there is another railroad nearby or feasibly available to these industries, but typically the incumbent railroad will not allow another railroad to go over its tracks to serve a customer that it holds captive. Uh, The statutes that uh, establish the STB provide for the STB to issue orders requiring railroads under certain circumstances to allow a competitive let's call, for lack of a better term competitive access from another railroad uh, the railroads don't like it it's very controversial uh it's a been the statute has been of almost no use for the last 40 years there have been pending rules before the stb since 2010 or pending requests for rules to loosen up the standards by which the board can order uh, this uh, competitive access from one railroad to another. Uh, it was sort of laying dormant by the time I became chairman. And in my view, increased competition is one of the best things we can do for the country's economy and for the shippers who rely on railroads. So we have initiated a sort of a re- reinvigoration of the consideration of how to deal with. Reciprocal switching. The board proposed a new rule and a new approach last September, and we're in the comment period now. Actually, I think the comments on the proposal have just concluded, Uh, and so the board will be grappling with uh, those comments and uh, arguments back and forth, and hopefully come up with a final rule in the foreseeable future. Um, The idea is to make it more feasible for reciprocal switching to be implemented but I, beyond that general concept i really can't go at this point because it is pending
0: gotcha um I, I guess we'll we'll change gears though since we can talk about something uh else um can you talk about uh you know precision scheduling railroading um broadly speaking wall street loves it uh shippers not so much uh, can you talk about, you know, the STB's uh, view on uh, PSR, if if you have one? And do you think the industry's been better off or worse off since most of the rails have implemented some sort of PSR operating uh, philosophy?
1: Well, several, several points. One, the board has never taken a position over PSR as a phenomenon, pro or con, or ever even considered it solely by itself. I rarely talk about PSR or talk about whether I like it or don't like it because I I don't really know what it is. Every time you ask a railroad, what is PSR, you get a different answer between railroads, sometimes different answers from the same railroad. The concept of scheduling when trains are supposed to move is hardly new. It's been around since the industry began. Uh, a part of it is a matter of emphasis. But what really, in my view, describes the phenomenon of PSR is it was really an excuse by the large railroads to cut their resources. But the only common factor I can see is that generally speaking, it is made for longer and fewer trains, thereby reducing the number of crew, which led to this 30% reduction, about 45,000 railroad workers have left the scene in the last 10 years. That's a huge reduction. Uh, and, uh, but longer trains don't always run efficiently. They often have to, there are no sightings long enough for one train to pass another that can slow down service. So it's, it's a very mixed bag. I, I don't really care what they call it or how many crew members they have, but it has not led for many, many shippers, if not most, to improve service. It's one of the phenomena that's led to all of the cries about poor service, which led to our hearings. Um, so some railroads are now not even talking about it anymore, they're just talking about improving their on-time performance, which is, in my view, you know, what the game should be about.
0: Got gotcha um yeah someone argued that uh before psr um a lot of the railroads would just build long heavy trains and that created a lot of uh inefficiencies in the network and and psr is kind of like a six sigma f- uh, from operations or manufacturing that was brought to the rail industry uh at uh, canadian national uh, or illinois central uh before that and uh Uh, most of the rails have kind of embraced, maybe not the whole philosophy, uh, but have uh, embraced parts of it to try to be more efficient. And, and there's a lot of debate about whether or not, uh, it's been good or bad for, for shippers, uh, but it's certainly been good for rail operations and and profitability, I should say.
1: It depends what one means by efficiency. If it means moving more tons of freight with fewer people, that's probably the case. If it means moving that freight time, in a timely way, that's useful to the customers, that's not happened as a result of PSR in my, in my view. So uh, I, I, I'm always bemused, um, Lee, by the Wall Street analysts who put out their weekly reports about what's going on in the rail industry. And when the number of workers goes down they mark that as a plus for that stock. And when the number of workers goes up, they mark it as a minus, which is exactly the opposite of what I think should be the measure of whether a railroad is a good business to invest in. But I'm not in the investment business. I could just see the results of poor rail service from having too few workers. But if you look at efficiency or what the analysts call productivity, yes, the number of tons per employee could go up if a number of employees goes down, but that doesn't mean they're getting there. When
0: they right. Get. And I think you have to bring a bunch of metrics to bear when you're looking at that. Oh. It's not just the number of employees that you're looking at. It's the number of employees per revenue, but then are they also, is their on-time performance better? Is their dwell time better? Is their velocity better? So um, I think you have to look at, from my perspective at least, you know, when I'm looking at a railroad, from a uh, financial standpoint, you have to take all the metrics that they have holistically uh, versus just narrow on on heads. Cause to your, to your point, you know, lower head count doesn't necessarily always mean good for the company, uh, for investors uh, and for shippers. Cause we really found that out uh, on when the pandemic kind of uh, started and the railroads, like we mentioned earlier, really caught, uh, Flat-footed and and really struggled for a long time and and they still have work to do uh, that's for sure to uh, to get service levels back to where they were uh, before the pandemic but but uh, you know from our vantage point
1: I think what gets overlooked by Wall Street analysts and observers often in general is that the health of the railroads is not something that's important to the country in a vacuum mm-hmm. somewhere around thirty to forty percent of the economy depends on freight railroads. People, I think the average person, would have no reason to think about it or understand it. I didn't before I got into this business. Um, And so looking at what might be good for rail stock doesn't tell you a thing about what's good for the overall GDP and productivity. And uh, it's really a short-sighted, as a national policy, and for anybody who's interested in the well-being of the country, just say, oh, well, look at the railroads. They're cutting their workforce, their stock price should go up, and I'm happy. That's a very myopic view of what's good for the country. Uh, I don't fault the stockholders. They're in the business of trying to make money on their stock, but I do fault people who have a, should have more of an overview of what's going on, and I do fault the rail management because I think they have an obligation to the public, and the Congress has said so. So it's, it's not something that I, I made up.
0: Okay. Um, you know, just to switch gears a little bit, you mentioned the uh, the merger that you were, uh, I guess you you were fortunate enough to be uh, at the SDB. Uh, you know, when it was approved, because it, it might very well be the last Class One merger between Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern. Um, maybe I'm, I'm leading the way.
1: By, win- for, by fortunate, you mean it was an interesting challenge. I agree.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> And it might be, yeah. you know, and so I, I, I might be leading the witness here, but uh, do, do you think that another two, two class one rails could merge today, the ones that are left? Or it just from a regulatory standpoint, the hurdle is just way too high?
1: Well, let me comment somewhat indirectly because it's theoretically possible that uh, such a merger could come before the board, although I probably wouldn't be while I'm on the board in 2000 or thereabouts after all of the previous mergers that reduced the number of class one railroads down to seven the board adopted a new set of regulations governing mergers of class one railroads and they do present significant hurdles and i think it would be extremely difficult for any two class ones to meet those hurdles but i can't say whether they would try or how the board might deal with it if that happened but there are significant regulatory hurdles for any further class one mergers. That's about as far as I think I can go.
0: Okay. And you you mentioned maybe not while you're there. uh, I recently read that uh, you're not seeking a second term at the STB. Is that correct?
1: Yes. My uh, five-year term expired on December 31. And by statute, I can serve an additional year without getting reappointed. And I intend to uh, serve through the spring and finish up some significant work that's pending there and retire for the second time. So I, could, I thought I'd retired before I joined the board, but that didn't work out.
0: Right. So this this question might be a little premature then, but is is there anything that you kind of wish that you, you did at the STB that maybe didn't have time or it was just too hard to get done uh, from a, I don't know if it's a. Uh, bureaucratic standpoint, a regulatory standpoint, or uh, just economic pressure standpoint that just it's just not in the cards of, of getting getting done well
1: it's a good it's a good question. I would say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, people should understand that the reg- the regulatory agency process is by law one that is cumbersome and time consuming. and I think that's appropriate. The industries that are regulated by various agencies, certainly the rail industry are extremely complex. The economics are complex. There are a number of problems in those industries that I think warrant regulatory activity, but regulatory activity should be very carefully and incrementally parsed in my view. So the fact that the process is slow can be frustrating but has built-in protections, I think, for the benefit of the of the public. So in that sense, I'm not really um, frustrated by it. I would say, Lee, that the longer I have been at the board, the more I have be- understood and appreciated the difficulties in the industry and the potential for the board through regulatory activity to perhaps improve the lot of the really of the economy as a whole. That is what I think our mandate is. And uh, so, yes, there's a lot more that I would have liked to have tackled. But, you know, I could be there 15 years, which wouldn't be legal because you can only serve two five year terms and still not finish all the regulatory work that potentially could be done. Uh, And I trust the people on the board who will be there after I'm gone. will continue the effort. Uh, I think we all. See that there are issues in the industry. We have our own views, but uh, I think there will be continued efforts to to improve the way freight rail serves the economy.
0: Okay, and so what's what's next for uh, for you after the STB? Might I ask?
1: Uh, well, I am truly one of those people who says I'm going to spend more time with my family. I have a wonderful wife. I have three spectacular grandchildren and I have a lightly used set of golf clubs. So all of those things are in, in my, uh, future. I hope.
0: Well, well, I hope you're able to lower your handicap, uh, while yeah. you're, while, while you're uh, in retirement and, uh, yeah. you know, thank you for uh, all you've done in, in, in public and private markets for that matter. Um, you know, appreciate, uh, hearing you over the years, uh, during your time at the STB, especially some of those, uh, contentious, uh, um, hearings that, that you've, uh, that you watched over?
1: Well, I enjoy the challenge and uh, it's been very fulfilling and very enlightening. You know, it's a whole new uh, world that opened up to me over the last five years. Um, um, and I, I am impressed with the value, the benefit and the importance of freight rail to the country. I am a big fan of freight rail. I think most of the CEOs don't see it that way, but I am.
0: Okay, great. Well, uh, Chairman Oberman, thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast.
1: I uh, much enjoyed it, Leif.
0: All right. Well, thanks. And, and thanks for tuning in. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've lined up a number of great guests for the podcast. Check back to hear conversations with C-suite executives, shippers, regulators, and decision makers within the freight transportation markets. Please follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter, Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, hit me up on the terminal or on Twitter at Logistics Lee. Thanks a lot and be safe out there.